At the Commonwealth Policy Foundation, we try to approach the issues of life, marriage, religious liberty, and fiscal integrity from a biblical perspective that promotes thoughtfulness and kindness. We work with political leaders and concerned citizens from all across the state. To stay informed, visit CommonwealthMatters.org and sign up for our e-newsletter. The Commonwealth Policy Foundation is a nonprofit organization that only exists because of friends like you. Thanks for tuning in to the Commonwealth Matters. Welcome to the Commonwealth Matters. I'm Richard Nelson with Commonwealth Policy Center here with Kentucky's Attorney General Daniel Cameron in his office, non-location in the Capitol. Daniel Cameron, welcome to the program. Richard, always good to see you and always glad to be on the program. Appreciate your time. We had scheduled this program for back in December, but you were called away to West mm. Kentucky, which was devastated by mm. tornadoes, and you were working on um, an effort to stop price gouging. Real right. quick, you set up a hotline, you had people in the field observing any actions that might have been taking advantage of that situation. Did you see a lot of unscrupulous activity, price gougers in that part of the state? Well, we got a few reports of price gouging, and I think even in um, in the Bowling Green area, there was um, a few individuals that were trying to um, take advantage of the situation and and steal goods or uh, items from people's houses that have been had been torn down or uh, destroyed. So uh, we continue to have a registration program that we are are, are working with locals uh, uh, that uh, in in counties that have been hit hardest. Yeah. Uh, so that when contractors come into uh, these communities, uh, there's there's a, a comfort level for uh, folks uh, in these counties uh, as they're trying to rebuild and uh, making sure that they're getting uh, legitimate contractors to work on uh, building back their home. That's good. We appreciate your efforts to protect Kentuckians who were hit hard. I want to pivot in the short period of time that we have a lot of things to talk about. We're limited with time, but vaccine mandates. Uh, as we speak, there are major protests going on in Canada's capital where um, protesters are flooding the capital against vaccine mandates. I think it's been a little more restrictive there. But here in the United States and in Kentucky, you have pushed back against government overreach regarding uh, vaccine mandates. You led, for example, a 20 state, uh, 27 states. Uh, in a letter uh, asking OSHA to withdraw their COVID vaccine ma mandates for businesses of 100 or more employees. What is the, what, what do you say, we get right to it, what do you say to critics who say you don't care enough about public health? Well, I've uh, maintained from the very beginning, Richard, as you know, that um, we've got to take care of each other. And I think all of us here in the Commonwealth and across this country instinctively understand the responsibility to keep people safe. Yes. What our office has been focused on in tandem with that responsibility is to make sure that any um, precautionary or medical measures that are taken during this pandemic are consistent with and abide by our constitutional rights and freedoms in this country. You take the OSHA mandate or the CMS mandate or the federal contractor vaccine mandate, any of those in our judgment um, are an intervention in the federal government in the ability of a state to make a decision about the health, safety, and well-being of its citizens. That is generally and historically a role that a state has played in yeah. looking after the health, safety, and well-being of citizens. Mm -hmm. That's not something that's been dictated by Washington, D.C. So we felt very strongly about standing up uh, for the constitutional rights of our citizens. And that uh, delineation, if you will, between 
the federal government and state government. The 10th Amendment says pretty uh, expressly and pretty plainly that those powers that are not given to the federal government are reserved for the states. Health and safety is reserved for a state to decide. And so um, we felt good about our position course in the OSHA case that went to the Supreme Court and uh, were able to get that mandate overturned, which we followed up with our letter to OSHA advising them not to do anything inconsistent with that Supreme Court decision. Uh, we uh, were victorious on the federal contractor mandate, meaning that um, folks that did business with the federal government don't have to uh, necessarily be vaccinated if they don't choose to do so. We did not get a favorable ruling in the CMS case. Um, that um, requires that nurses and folks that in the healthcare community be vaccinated. We continue to look at ways to uh, to challenge um, uh, that ruling. We think there's been a, some change in the status of uh, COVID and the o Omicron variant as it relates to uh, the CMS rule. So we continue to uh, fight on that front. But at the end of the day, we want to make sure we're standing up for the rights of our citizens. There's one more challenge you made, uh, General Cameron, to the Biden administration's mandatory vaccinations for Head Start staff. And you argued that it would probably... Uh, Head Start in Kentucky probably lose staff. Or what? What is the status? Well, that? Um, that continues. To, we we got that um, in the Fifth Circuit uh, in in Louisiana. We we've gotten that Head Start um, vaccine mandate stayed, or it's been stopped from putting into effect. But there are several steps that have to move forward on that particular case, and and hopefully uh, we'll continue to be, get get good rulings um, out of that case. General Cameron, the sanctity of life and protecting it is one of your priorities that you have listed from the very beginning. A uh, couple of pro-life efforts that you have initiated. You filed a lawsuit with 11 states to protect against taxpayer funding of abortions. You've led 21 states with an amicus brief in support of Tennessee's waiting period law regarding abortion. Um, it's expected, or many Supreme Court watchers are anticipating a favorable ruling by the court challenging another state law that could overturn Roe v. Wade. If that were to happen, what does that look like for Kentucky, first of all? And what does it look like for your office if the issue goes back to the states? Well, uh, as you know, Richard, uh, Roe v. Wade's been on the books for 49 years, and that's just 49 years too long, uh, in my view, and I think a lot of the folks that are, are watching right now. Um, I'm hopeful that when the decision is rendered by the United States Supreme Court, uh, it returns the, the, the ability uh, back to the states to make decisions as it relates to pro-life measures. Here in Kentucky, we're currently defending two uh, pro-life laws, uh, Senate Bill 9, which is the heartbeat bill. Uh, what happens in the Dobbs case that we're talking about will have direct impact on Senate Bill 9, our heartbeat bill. Uh, th that heartbeat bill... Um, can we can continue our defense of that heartbeat bill if we get a favorable ruling uh, mm -hmm. in the Dobbs case. And then, of course, we've got the anti-discrimination ban, mm -hmm. uh, House Bill 5 that was passed mm -hmm. a couple of year ago, years ago. We continue to defend that case. We think um, there was a decision out of Tennessee recently uh, that uh, favors our view as it relates to uh, banning discrimination uh, related to uh, abortions. Mm -hmm. So we're going to continue uh, working on this fight, and I, I'm pretty confident our legislature, depending on what the United States Supreme Court does, will be ready to continue advancing the ball related to pro-life uh, 
One other pro-life initiative is you defended, you're asking the Supreme Court to allow your office to defend House Bill 454. That's the gruesome dismemberment abortion ban. Has there been a ruling on that? Or are we still waiting we're for still, a ruling? Yeah, we're still waiting. And again, optimistic that we'll get a favorable ruling. At the end of the day, what we're asking is that the Attorney General of Kentucky be allowed to continue defending this really important law that bans this live dismemberment abortion. And so we're hopeful we'll get a favorable ruling there. Um, human trafficking. This is a, a priority issue for your office. You, your office was recently awarded $600,000 from a federal grant to provide tra uh, transitional housing for human trafficking survivors in Southeast Kentucky. When I think of this issue, General Cameron, I have a hard time imagining that it's here in the Commonwealth of Kentucky, but it is. Can you give us an idea of how serious it is or how widespread this is? Yeah, well, it affects every community uh, in the Commonwealth. And what we have prioritized uh, is making sure that there's more awareness about it, meaning um, whether it be an uh, uh, awareness campaign we started last year called Your Eyes Save Lives, which is a simple message, but a profound one, meaning that uh, having 360 degree awareness uh, can be the difference between somebody being subjected to human trafficking or getting out of a very dangerous situation. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're going to continue to to work on our efforts there. Um, we've got uh, Heather Wagers who heads up our human trafficking uh, work uh, and does a fantastic job. We've obviously got some events that are come to Kentucky, whether it be the Farm Machinery Show or um, the Kentucky Derby, that mm -hmm. attract elements of human trafficking. Uh, so again, it's it's an issue that affects all communities in Kentucky, and we want to make sure. Uh, that we do everything we possibly can uh, to make people aware of the situation. Social media has been in the news for some time, uh, in, especially in regards to its effects on children. Uh, you are co-leading a nationwide investigation into Meta, formerly known as Facebook, for providing and promoting um, its social media platform in ways that would possibly harm children. We know of the addictive nature of social media. We know of some of the content that's there that's not healthy for children. Could you give us a little update on how that investigation is going? Yeah, the investigation, um, can't speak specifically to it, but suffice it to say that we are um, looking at these online platforms and trying to make determinations about whether um, their promoting of these tools is having negative consequences and effects on children. Uh, you know, a lot of challenges that we see for children, look, I've, I've got a five-week-old at home right now. Um, and so I think about this and I, I know my wife Mackenzie does too, but as, as he grows up, um, you know, the pressures that are put on a child because of social media and, and the, the images that they see there that can have long-term effects on a child into um, uh, being, becoming an adult uh, are things that we need to focus on, not only as parents, but as uh, folks in positions of leadership. Uh, and so this investigation, along with uh, a letter that we wrote recently to uh, Meta, uh, encouraging them not to uh, promote Instagram to children because of some of the challenges that exist um, uh, are really important to me personally. And, and I know a lot of folks across Kentucky uh, um, value uh, making sure that uh, kids are protected online. There is a, a precedent of large corporations that target children with inappropriate content or uh, activities. I'm thinking of Joe Camel back in the 90s when Big Tobacco was sued by the federal government and Joe Camel had images that appealed to young children. And in a similar vein, I'm guessing that's what Instagram and some of the other social media outlets are doing. That's exactly right. Is uh, And we 
you know, again, are, are looking into the um, strategies that are, they're utilizing to attract kids and, and, and the challenges that exist because of that. Religious freedom. This is another one of your priority issues. You have recently uh, led a coalition of 12 states. You're leading a lot of coalitions, by the way, aren't you? <laughs> well, we've got a great team here in the office and, and fortunate and blessed to, to have folks that are really talented uh, to be able to do some of this stuff. So there's 12, a 12 state coalition that you're part of that you're leading. Uh, you filed an amicus brief before the U.S. Supreme Court supporting a religious group's First Amendment rights in the city of Boston to uh, to to put up a Christian flag in a public forum. Now that public forum was used by other organizations that could put other kind of flags up, but this Christian group was discriminated against and told that they cannot do it. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that case? Yeah, I mean, you've laid out the facts pretty well. I mean, this is um, a First Amendment um, uh, issue and challenge. Mm -hmm. And um, this group and organization in Boston should have the exact same right as any other organization. Uh, to make sure uh, that they can hoist their flag up uh, and they shouldn't be discriminated again because because it's a religious or Christian message. Yeah. Attorney General Cameron, we are out of time. I wish we could continue on. We'll have to do it again. Of course. Whenever you want to come over, I'm obviously happy to come over to your place too and yeah. uh, enjoy speaking with you and enjoy getting to spend some time with your viewers. Love to have you. God bless. Keep God bless you. Hi, Richard Nelson here with the Commonwealth Policy Center. It's clear that the news media isn't always fair. In fact, there's lots of far-left bias and political gamesmanship. No surprise there. So if you're looking for a perspective that's grounded in the truth of Scripture and our nation's founding principles, then get plugged into CPC's resources. Sign up for our e-newsletter at CommonwealthPolicyCenter.org. You can also follow us on Facebook at Commonwealth Policy Center. And we're on Twitter at cpc for kentucky Welcome to the Commonwealth Matters. I'm Richard Nelson, Executive Director of the Commonwealth Policy Center, here with State Senator Max Wise. Max, welcome to the program. Richard, thanks for having me on. Hey, I wanted to uh, invite you because there are a couple of bills that you've recently introduced that are making statewide news. And one is an issue that uh, the Kentucky General Assembly has been known to tackle over the last several sessions as it has received, especially a Republican majority in the State House. And I'm talking about pro-life legislation. Uh, you recently introduced Senate Bill 321, which essentially bans abortions after 15 weeks. It's similar to Mississippi's abortion ban. In fact, this is a bill that was argued in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, it is the Dobbs v. Jackson case. And a lot of court watchers think that this may be the case that undoes Roe v. Wade or else sets a precedent that Roe v. Wade can be undone. So my question is this, if that's the case, if Mississippi has passed a law banning abortions after 15 weeks, if the Supreme Court may eventually undo it or set the groundwork for this to happen, for abortion to be undone, why was this bill necessary? That's a great question, and I was following closely uh, everything that's happening with the Dobbs case uh, coming out of the, the state of Mississippi. And we felt, and when I say we, it was me consulting with our Senate leadership staff, and especially those that are legal uh, attorneys. And uh, I felt like this is, is a good time to, to get this out for Kentucky. Um, and, you know, we, we'll know a decision, I think, by June or July this summer of what's going to be happening with the case. But we felt like, you know, statutorily, let's go ahead and get this moving for Kentucky to show, hey, we are a pro-life state. You know, we are one of those that are going to stand uh, for the unborn. And uh, working, like I said, with my Senate leadership staff, 
felt like, let, let's get the bill out there. Let's, let's show the discussion. Let's also say, hey, Kentucky's done some wonderful work in years past. The fetal heartbeat bill, defund Planned Parenthood. I know the big omnibus HB3 that's over there right now and uh, with, with the constitutional amendment that's going to be forthcoming too. So uh, I was excited you know, to be able to, to step up and say, listen, if Mississippi's got this out there right now, let's just have Kentucky right there in the wings waiting. Yeah. uh, So Kentucky has enacted, I think it's a dozen or more pro-life laws in the last five, six years. This would make uh, abortions illegal after 15 weeks, which is the second trimester. Really, 12 weeks is the first trimester. 13 on is the second. Um, Most countries across the globe ban second trimester abortions. I was surprised to see about three quarters, 75 percent of all nations ban second trimester abortions. Uh, many of these procedures, the majority of the way these abortions are done is through a procedure called DNE, dilation and extraction, which is a pretty gruesome way to, uh, to end that unborn life. I did read the, the language of the bill, it's, and I'm going to spare the listeners that, but it's pretty gruesome in, in what's done. Here's some things to consider, and you know this, but I'm sharing this for the benefit of the listeners. Uh, between five to six weeks gestation, an unborn child's heart begins to beat. At eight weeks in utero, an unborn child begins to move about in the womb. At nine weeks, all basic physiological functions are present, including teeth, eyes, and external genitalia. At 10 weeks, an unborn child's vital organs begin to function. Hair, fingernails, and toenails begin to form. Max, that's 10 weeks. We're talking abortion is still legal at this early stage when you can see that it's not just a blob of cells, it's not an undefined mass, but this is a human being. You can see the head, the limbs, even down to the toenails, fingernails. Uh, At 12 weeks, an unborn child can open and close his or her fingers. They start to make sucking motions, and they sense stimulation from the world outside the womb. One other important thing to note is that their pain receptors are highly developed um, at this stage and going up to 15, 16, 17 weeks, you're simply, if you look at it from the perspective of being humane, you're banning a very painful and gruesome procedure on a living human being. Even though that human being's in the womb, it's still a human being. You know, and that's what's amazing when you see testimony uh, opposing uh, Senate Bill 321 and other pro-life measures that we've done. You know, we always have the advocates on the other side of the aisle from Planned Parenthood and others uh, speaking out against. It's always talking about, you know, uh, you know the, the economic hardships, and we talk about the situations like that, but we're talking about life, and we're talking about exactly what you just mentioned right there, the formational stages of life that's occurring. Uh, I'm proud uh, to, to lead on this bill. Uh, I'm happy also to have uh, people like Attorney General Daniel Cameron that are leading that fight for us at the, uh, at the federal court level. Uh, I look forward uh, to this bill moving. I was glad to see uh, Chairman Westerfield take this as quickly as he did with Judiciary, hoping to see it moves really quickly this week off the Senate floor uh, that we can get over to the House, or if it needs to be uh, worked with in House Bill 3, if it needs to be a companion piece. That sounds good. Uh, Senator Wise, there was an interview uh, in Kentucky today, actually a story on this topic in Kentucky today, and they interviewed Dr. Brittany Myers, an OB-GYN resident at the University of Louisville. And Dr. Myers said this, this bill, referring to Senate Bill 321, is filled with non-medical terminology, false information, and inflammatory language that is focused on shaming 
and falsely informing the non-medical community. She also went on to say that the 15-week limit is a theoretical gestational age chosen with no regard for actual embryonic logic. How do you respond to that? I I will say I think the response was uh, during the day in committee. Those were the words that uh, Dr. Myers brought up exactly uh, in her opposition to 321 the day in in the Senate Judiciary Committee. And I think you saw in that same article, the members of the Senate Judiciary Committee went right back to her. Um, you know, it, it's 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 just very disturbing uh, to hear someone talk about theoretical and talking about words like that. We're, we're talking about human life. <laughs> you know, there, there's been enough evidence to show there's been enough things out there. And to say that this was uh, not based on science and based on others, it just it, you become infuriated uh, as a legislator. Uh, and so many times I just let the bill to speak for itself when it gets the vote that it does. And the reason I bring up her quote, by the way, she's a, a medical doctor. She practices OB-GYN, uh, uh, and she is known as a person, an authority regarding science. Now, I have a biology background. I'm not a doctor, nor do I pretend to be one. But when you use terms like theoretical gestational age, uh, chosen with no regard for actual embryonic logic, what I shared earlier in the program, the heart beats at five to six weeks. That is not theoretical. Fingernails and toenails developing at 10 weeks. This is not theoretical. These are actual scientific facts that are well documented. And it's troubling when you have a leader and authority in the scientific community saying things like this, confusing the issue even more. Now, you're a legislator. You're put on the hot seat. And often you're told, and I've heard this in committees, who are you to tell uh, women what to do? Who are you to tell the scientific community what to do as well? And I know it's a, it's a tough position for you to be in, isn't it? Well, it is. But, you know, you, you've got to have those of us that are, are, are prayer for warriors that stand there, you know, for the unborn, that value life. And, you know, and some of these stories are, are very tough uh, to hear about from the mothers. But at the same time, where's the discussion of adoption? Where's the discussion of others that would love to be able to take that child, uh, even if it was born into uncertain circumstances of financial hardships? Uh, but that whole committee meeting, you never heard the doctor or anyone talk about adoption or what is in the best interest of that child. And so uh, I found it very, very disturbing. I, I worry sometimes if somebody in her position, is that coming from uh, lectures uh, in med schools? Is that coming from places that would raise a lot of concerns? But I know also on the other side, I know a lot of strong Christian pro-life doctors in the medical community that would rebuttal her in an instant with that comment that she made. One, one last point regarding this is when we're talking about human life in the womb, it's important to remember that all of us began as a human embryo. I believe you were born before Roe v. Wade. I was born before Roe v. Wade just a couple years, and um, we all appreciated that law being on the books to protect our lives, didn't we? That is correct. And, you know, I look now at, at what the Supreme Court's got the opportunity to do, you know, with the Dobbs case, and I, I'm just proud to see that we have both legislative chambers stand up for the rights of the unborn. You know, I've been in here in the legislature for seven years, and we finally saw once we flipped the House that we were able to stand up for many years trying to get bills like this passed through that we just simply could not make its way out of committee. Uh, and so it, it's, a, it's a very comforting time right now. We have got such a strong base of people, and that's what they want. Uh, they, they have, they've wanted this for years, and they want to see us acting on legislation such as this.
That's good. Senator Wise, let's move to another important bill that you recently introduced. It's Senate Bill 138. It's called the Teaching American Principles Act. However, the Louisville Courier-Journal calls this a critical race theory bill. Tell us why you call it uh, the Teaching America Principles Act, first of all. Well, this was a, a topic that we discussed throughout the interim of our legislative session. Uh, we knew that with the discussions of many states around the U.S. were having discussions about critical race theory, we took it on the Senate side as, hey, let's also focus this at as a civics standpoint. Let's look at this in terms of social study standards. You know, we have standards in place up to the fifth grade level of where we have actually American documents that our elementary school students and teachers can refer back to the Mayflower Compact, the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, just just so forth and so on. Well, when we do the state assessment test, that is material then that is used and there are sources to document that. We don't have those in middle school. We don't have those in high school. So after fifth grade, we have nothing in there to say, what are core American documents? And we have nothing as primary sources. So what I decided to do is work with what was called the Ashbrook Center, and they did not assist us with this bill. But we looked at the Ashbrook Center. They had 50 core American documents. Those are coming from PhDs and from think tanks. And it's not a Republican nor Democrat group. They're very nonpartisan. But we looked at that list and said, let's narrow it down to maybe 24. And let's try to find those that we really can also have discussion today and go back to. And even some very discomforting points of our nation's history. You know, this is not telling teachers you cannot talk about slavery. We encourage teachers to talk about those dark hours. Plessy versus Ferguson was not a good Supreme Court decision. Marbury versus Madison, Dred Scott, there's so many things right there that we could say, look at it then, let's look at things today. So we wanted to get back to uh, uh, focusing on this bill, looking at it also as what did the republic, when we set up not a democracy, we set up a republic And for that as a way to have our kids educated on documents, we lose so much of our civics. And that's not a blame to teachers, Richard. It's not. It's just that we, it's easier now to print off an article, show a class and say, okay, let's debate this. Well, let's go back and let's look at it over the years. That would be a great learning moment right there too for many students to say, what would this look like back in 1975? Well, maybe we can find a document or a Supreme Court decision to that time to look at today's world compared to then. I do want to close with a comment that Education Commissioner Jason Glass had said recently, our concern remains that the state legislature, through a process that is political by design, is mandating curricular resources. Now, how do you respond when you hear things like that, that the legislature's mandating curriculum in the classroom? There's nothing in this bill that deals with curriculum. There is a lot that deals with this bill with social study standards. Frankfurt has that legislative authority with KRS statutes. We can set standards. We did that with Senate Bill 1 a few years ago with state standards of looking at Common Core and issues such as that. But with this, this, once again, we're using these documents as primary sources. We would love teachers. We've had some great ideas of teachers saying, you know what, I will take the Ronald Reagan speech, A Time for Choosing. That was in 1964. We've already had a teacher say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to compare Barack Obama's speech from 2004, and I'm going to use that to show in a 40-year span right there how it launched the political career of both of those men. That's probably both of those are probably two of the top five speeches of oratory skills. That's a great way right there to segue into what we're looking to do. This is not teaching or pushing curriculum. 
it's once again looking at standards. That's a good response. Senator Wise, we are out of time. Thank you so much for your time. Keep up the good work in the legislature. Thank you, Richard.